to all of those who loved him, all of us who still look for the black number three in the field, if you look real hard, they say you can still see him there. If you listen with us to the following song, well, perhaps you just might feel him here with us tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, here to remember Dale Earnhardt. TC and Jake. Matt, do you have any Dale Earnhardt memories? Uh, I do remember him dying. I remember, you know, uh, everyone standing on the third lap of the, the subsequent race and, uh, you know, how, how, moving, how moving that was. Did they race the next weekend? Do you recall, DC? I have no idea. It'd be interesting to know. Do you know if it was the next, next weekend, Matt? I don't know. I'm, okay. sure they didn't, I'm sure they didn't cancel anything. Yeah, that's... That seems safe. The people had paid money for the race after all. Um, that, was, that was the peak era, too. They were raking in the bucks. <laughs> yeah, but uh, we, we, we've got Matt Bruning with us. Um, I think that the uh, partly the genesis of this is... Uh, I, haven't, I haven't listened to your latest podcast, but I know on there you did uh, reveal that you'd been to Texas. I just got, gathered that from the title. As did mm-hmm. I, yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we'd, we'd, we'd seen each other then, and you'd uh, mentioned at that point that if we were going to do, do something, that you had seen the Woodstock documentary, but apparently were not receiving large amounts of enthusiasm from your entire podcasting team about spending a lot of time talking about the Woodstock documentary. And that's a different situation than the one that we're in. So, yeah, I've is seen because it. It seems like uh, Jake was also not very enthusiastic about it. No, nah, but so there's this thing that happens. It's happened. It happened with Dan in Boyhood, where the first couple times someone asked me to watch something, and I honestly just forgot or didn't have time. At that point, I feel like I have to keep up what is now a, a ruse of I'm only watching it to upset you. And now here's the best part about this. Now I have watched it be but only because you're on the show with us. So I was never going to do it <laughs> for a podcast with just DC, but now, now I have. Um, Don't do it for me, dude. Do it for Fred. Okay, yeah, it wasn't his fault. I yeah. do have a few things to get to before that. Is that cool? <laughs> yeah, 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 of course. Um, one thing, uh, are you guys prepared? It's probably already started. But are you guys prepared for like the most insane week of takes of all time leading up to the 20th anniversary of 9-11 right after the the evacuation drawdown, whatever you want to call it? Because it's going to be like I almost want to spend a night. To answer your question, no. I almost want to spend a night pinning fake pitches to myself. (laughs) (laughs) No, I hadn't actually considered that that 9-11 20th anniversary is coming up or its interaction with the Afghanistan withdrawal that literally never uh, honestly just didn't cross my mind at all so well it starts with the fact that the first you know months ago when I saw the administration announced that they're gonna that they're, they're gonna have all of the troops out by September 11th I'm like that seems kind of kitschy yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you're you're making like a uh ah, this is like an event out of this to commemorate 9-11 I'm not totally sure there's a you know there's a 20-year time limit <laughs> at the point, the, it starts when that first tower was hit, and then you got to get it in before that. It's yeah. a warranty deal. The lawyers worked it out. Right, <laughs> warranty. <laughs> but someone's going to write something uh, like September twelfth. I think is the Monday. Someone's going to write something like football can't save us, or some form, some form. Because Sunday's going to be like a, a whole one. day of. You remember of, how Tony disrespected the tenth one? 
by throwing to Revis in the fourth quarter. Jets game, right? Yeah. Looking for Dez, yeah. maybe. But it, it's going to be... It's going to be a remarkable week of of fuel for the for the take economy, and i i want to I want to guess at it. I don't know how to play that game. I uh, I did try like at the beginning of this year. Or it, I think it was even last year because it was whenever the coronavirus started setting in. I said, you know, what what are the things I can do with all this free time? And uh, one of them was, well, I can get ready for the twentieth anniversary of nine eleven. By I've I've got a lot of the uh, the ticket tapes that you know in, in sports radio thirteen ten the ticket lore nine eleven looms large because the Dallas Observer wrote a column uh, I think it was actually Eric Celeste in popular memory it's always Wolanski but I think I think it's Eric Celeste that wrote it um, and it was it was blown up like poster size and hung in the offices like whenever you would walk to sales back whenever we were at uh, Rivershawn. Uh, you would walk by the article about how this is when the ticket grew up. This is what makes them special. When they became president. Is that they, they were the unifiers uh, after after this terrible tragedy. And I was like, how cool would that be to document the unifying they did? Um, and, you know, give everyone like a little radio documentary. And I started listening to the tapes and realized that I love these people too much to put it out what they actually said. <laughs> it was a lot of unification if you weren't Muslim. <laughs> so that's yeah. probably best. You should your... at least put out the Grego tapes. Boy, yeah, I, I want to hear that. I want to hear Hawk Grego. Yeah, no, uh, certainly, certainly, <laughs> he was uh, involved. Um, but yeah, so and there was one of the things. It's I, better if everyone just remembers them the way they remember them. Yeah, it's just it's like your uh, it's like your mom and dad being together. Yeah. Uh, so something that I've been he- I've been hearing this a ton uh, from like emailers that own businesses and guys who work in the restaurant industry and stuff. It's the uh, no one wants to work thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then I read an article, uh, a People's Policy Project post where. Basically, you're just. Documenting. I think Matt reads them a lot too. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. you're basically just documenting uh, how employment levels have changed as states have uh, completely eliminated the guaranteed income, and it's there's basically seemingly no real evidence for this. If there is, it's you know minimal. Yeah, we had a. I mean, we had a great kind of natural experiment because half the states got rid of them and half the states didn't. So you know, you couldn't write it up any better than that. And it's very easy from that point to just say, okay, well, they started getting rid of them around May or June, um, and they started announcing they were going to get rid of them around May. So you know, how did employment diverge between the cutters and the non-cutters? And the one that the piece that I put up recently was I did it from May to August, and there was no difference at all in terms of aggregate employment. Um, it was like 0.05 percentage points difference in job growth, which is like within the margin of error. And if you start cutting the states out even more finely based on when they cut the benefits, it gets even less. There's just nothing there. The Wall Street Journal had a piece today. They did the exact, basically the exact same analysis that I did on the exact same data, except they, instead of going from May to August, they went from April to July based on the idea that people started talking about cutting them in May. They actually found that states that didn't cut them had higher employment than the states that did cut them in terms of employment growth over the period. So lots of evidence coming out. There was evidence from bank transaction data, which is interesting because you don't normally see that. 
that's like a really fun one because you're not the normal ones you call people on the phone, you know, and how are you working? And that can be a little bit dodgy. But now you just got a whole bunch of bank accounts and, and you see, you know, did you get a paycheck? Did you uh, get your unemployment benefits? Did it actually hit your account? And they were able to do that. And they didn't find much in the way of any kind of job growth. Um, what you have seen a little bit of, and I think there's some decent evidence for this, which I think helps kind of round the story and make it make sense, is that the people who were on unemployment benefits, it does seem like there was a, they, they were slightly more aggressive in finding jobs than uh, if they were in cutting states than non-cutting states, like four percentage points more or something like that, like a pretty small amount. But at least, hey, like at least it, the story makes some sense. You cut that kind of benefit, surely someone's going to go out and get a job. But what happened was there are a lot of people who are looking for work who aren't on unemployment benefits. And so there was just a uh, elbowing out of those people. Like those people would have otherwise... Oh, shit. Sorry, we're having floods here. Those people would have otherwise gotten those jobs... But now the UI people are really aggressive about going getting them, and so they're elbowing them out. So like those two factors are completely offset. So all you really did was you slightly changed who got some of the open jobs, but you didn't change the amount of total people getting jobs, but you also just slashed just millions and millions of people's income just to the bone. So I mean, I didn't know that that was going to happen. Honestly, I didn't. I didn't. I never wrote any piece like predicting this because... It's a, I have no idea. Like it's pandemic. It's totally unique, novel, weirdo case. I have no idea what's going to happen, but that is what happened. It didn't, it didn't juice employment at all. It's just too bad that the Biden administration is totally has their hands tied and can't do anything about this. (laughs) Well, yeah, you know, I mean, one of the things that they cut, which was the pandemic unemployment assistance, which was what allowed like gig workers to get the benefits, Uber drivers and whatever. It I think sure you were did. on that, right? Uh-huh. That was, if you actually read that law, the states were not in a position where they were allowed to cut that. Um, it was modeled on something called disaster unemployment assistance, which is a special program that, you know, like with Hurricane Katrina or, you know, something like that happens. They have a little special unemployment program for that. It was based on that. And that is not something that states have discretion over. And the DOL had actually written a memo pointing this out during the Trump administration. Like, you can't actually cut that. That's not something you can choose to get rid of as a state. And the federal government has an obligation to actually get these benefits out. And we, I wrote some pieces when, they, when the states were... Because the states did cut them. The states just stopped providing them. And that was illegal. <laughs> and, and Biden could have done something. And he just chose not to. And... As it is now, they're everything scheduled to go on September 6th, even in the states that didn't cut it. They're all going to go. Um, and I, I've not been able... The only representative who I've found who have had any interest in this is Ilan Omar. She's the only one who's like, oh, I'm going to try. I mean, you know, and fail. But, you know, it's like she's the only one who has some interest in it. I can't really get anyone else interested in it. And, and there's not a lot of... I don't know. Like, compared to the eviction moratorium... They were sleeping on the Capitol Hill. There was all this activity. It's Labor Day. We're going to see like some 20 million people living in, or, you know, living in households that are going to get their income cut to zero or, or you know, cut in half or, or whatever, depending on their situation. And, you know, for nothing, because it's not working. Um, 
but no, there's not a lot of, uh, you know, not a lot of people resisting that at the moment. I have one more thing. Uh, actually, I have like five, but I want to take as many as you proper want. time to Woodstock here. Um, so I want to be clear about this, like just so that we're all, you know, every, everybody, me stays on the up and up here. I don't want to mention the name of any specific charity. Uh, I want to ask you this question because we were talking about this the other day. I believe basically from reading you that most evidence uh, would indicate that the best way to help poor people is give them money. That mm-hmm. producing the most optimal outcomes rather than whether it's these odd means testing, these programs, that just giving people money produces the best results. And we were, mm-hmm. you know, we were talking about a couple of, of charities and like, all right, well, you know, and even I, there's one that Dan and I might possibly be involved with uh, at some point, a couple of them we've looked at and they have, you know, requirements of what it takes for you to get this money and for you to get their assistance. So my, I guess my, my question is on balancing that is, you know that that's the way uh, to improve people's lot best. I know that from reading people like you, but most people I think either don't know that or would never believe it no matter how much evidence you showed them, right? Like they just believe, give people money, they're lazy, they'll never work again. It's not that different from what we were just talking about. So the question is, and this is kind of at the heart of a lot of the like political philosophical tension I feel when it comes to policy is if you know that you can raise way less money by telling people we're just going to give people money because that's what's going to help them the most, is that better than the we can raise money that's going to require people to jump through these hoops to get it knowing that we can raise way, way more by couching it that way because people are more comfortable with that idea? I hope that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes sense. You know, I think it's funny because, uh, to my mind, charity or civil society or whatever you might, you know, churches, civic clubs, whatever, that part of the system does play a role. And I'm, I'm actually much more comfortable with that part of the system being more hands-on and, you know, trying to, you know, I don't know, help people, give them like advice and, in 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 that way. And like the, the ideal system is that the welfare state handles the money and then the charitable organizations can come in and do some of these more soft touch things. Like if someone has addiction issues or someone has behavioral problems or something like like that. Job training and things like that. Exactly. Right. And that's something that the federal government that is something where it really is the case that like local knowledge and stuff like that's going to come in where, you know, a big federal bureaucracy is going to struggle. Um, the, the challenge then becomes, okay, well, what if the, what if the federal welfare state is not doing what it needs to do? And now charity is having to do both things, having to both move a lot of money around, which it's not really very good at. It's like very inefficient and, and handle, the more hands-on, like we need to help people who really have serious problems, like beyond just money. Um, and I don't know, that's a, that's a, like a second best consideration. And I guess it, you know, might depend on, on how much, how much extra money you could raise versus how much more the like impediments create, you know, I, I don't know. I think, I think it, you know, the best way to understand it is like, is almost just to separate the issues altogether, right? So sometimes when I point out, like, we could just give children money, and we're, we're doing it now. Under Biden, we got the child tax credit. It's got problems, whatever. But now they're giving it out to everyone, at least on paper. 
And people will say, well, what about, you know, people are going to squander that. And what about people, you know, they're going to gamble it away or drink it away and it's not going to go to the kids. And I always say, you know, we have child protective services, like for people who are not managing money well, wh- wherever it comes from, because you could do that with a paycheck just as well as you can do it with a benefit check. We have that in place. I'm not saying that they run well, but like that is that is the institution you want to be working on when it comes to that issue. And the people raising those concerns probably aren't like heavily in favor of uh, robust funding for child protective <laughs> services. Yeah, well, that CPS has its own has its own has its own unique politics around uh, you know yeah um, uh, yeah so. And like I, it does. I I know that I I understand its function, and like I I think it'd be insane of me to take the position that something like CPS doesn't exist. But I really struggled whenever we had our kid, like whatever, like the first couple weeks of fatherhood, to realize that it, there was a mechanism for someone to come in and take it. Like in in I'm sure that in the history of CPS that the, there has been a misunderstanding. And good people who probably didn't deserve it coming had their kids taken. And I don't know, man. I mean, whatever. Oh, plenty. Plenty yeah. of times. Plenty of times. And, but, and then, but then the CPS thing is also interacts with the other point because they'll take the kid away because the kid is not being adequately fed or closed or whatever, which you may not even have the money to do. And then that's where you're like, oh, okay. it's not really this person's fault. They can't get a job. They, they, they would take, like, if you gave them the money, they would. And, and then they're now charged with, like, basically cleaning up the problems caused by just bad income distribution. And so ideally, we just separate these two things, and things I think would run more smoothly, not perfectly, but, you know, more smoothly. And then civil society kicks in as well to help people who have behavioral problems and stuff like that, hopefully, um, you know. I certainly tried to get my parents caught up in one of those mixed up situations where somebody yeah. who didn't deserve to lose their kids lost their kids many times. Uh-huh. Like once I, once I found out what that was, what the I hotline was? immediately wanted to know the phone number <laughs> yeah. as an empty threat. Just anytime your mom starts yelling, I'm dialing, bitch. <laughs> yeah, I think I would have been dead if I said that, but I was willing to make the, uh, the hollow threat over CPS. And then my third and final thing, uh, that okay. I saw you write about was the age of uh, the age of first time parenthood and mm-hmm. how it changes and you know molds society. And I think like I'm this is entirely anecdotal, but I I know that this is the way it played out in my life. So like if the general point is you know uh, would would you like to state it like on how that changes grandparents' age and the, yeah 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 I wrote this on my own website manbrewing.com and it's just something I've been thinking about for a long time, but I, I try not to like. People get really heated in these discussions <laughs> about when you should have kids, and I really don't care. Um, so I just try to wait till everything's calm and no one's talking about it, and then I'll just put this out here and it worked because no one got pissed off at me, which is you know people usually get pissed oh, off. Oh, I'm no fucking. What I say. I'm lit up. <laughs> <You're Yeah. bad. laughs> so the idea is just uh, you know if everyone has you know let's say everyone has kids at 20, that's the normal first age of birth. That was the case about I don't know 40, 50 years ago. The average age of first birth was like 21. Okay, so then you just kind of add from there, right? So you're you have your first kid when you're 20. Grandparents are 40. Great grandparents are 60. Great great grandparents are 80. If you move it out to 30, you have your kid when you're 30. Your grandparent when you're 60. Your great grandparent when you're 90. You move it out to 40. 
you're a, grand, you're a parent when you're 40, you're a grandparent when you're 80. And what you're noticing is everything's getting stretched out and the number of people in the middle of the kind of family lineage is getting smaller. In the first example, you had three people in the middle between the youngest, the, the newborn and the oldest you know, family member, and then you had two and then you have one. And so as that middle thins out, the burden is a lot higher um, on the people in the middle because we really rely on working age people, you know, between the ages of whatever, 20 and 60, they kind of carry the load of society and carry the loads of their own families. And if you're reducing the number of people that are in that age range relative to the number of people who are on the extremes, then that's just going to be harder. Um, and it's going to be harder for parents. They're going to have less people who can help them. And, you know, so I think that thinning out is its own phenomenon that has to be considered. Um, and I don't think it gets considered quite that way. So I, I so my point, I think, and this is, uh, again, it's anecdotal to me, but I think I, I know a couple people that it's worked out this way for. And also, uh, it's extremely myopic on my part because... By the time that they're the age they are now, like mid-60s, my parents have done okay for themselves. 10 years ago, less so. 10 years before that, even less so. So for me, and I have no data on this whatsoever, my, my question would be, I wonder if that hollowing out of the middle and the number of people that are taking uh, care of the kid is made up for by the fact that everybody who is still in that chain is theoretically at a higher earning power. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, so my parents, if, if yeah. I had a kid at 34, if I had a kid at 24, my parents would be way less capable to help take care of it. If you wind it back, you know, to 20, you know, as they've gotten older, they're not retired when my dad is, but my mom's not retired, but she's much more capable and, and fit from a resource standpoint to help out now than she would have been before. And I, I would assume that's the case for a lot of people, but I'm also probably assuming way too much about what my parents yeah, ended up, I mean, you know, doing economically. And I mean, I, did, I didn't do any, you know, let's, let's dive into the census data and let me make some kind of point. It was, it was literally just like napkins, napkin level math. But Well, let me tell you seems, this. The, re, the yeah. reason why that I, I started thinking about this was the point that you are basically, the older you wait, reducing the amount of time that those other family members will get to spend of their life with the kid. And that made me think right. like, damn, like that sucks. My mom is like, you know, we dropped my kid off at my mom's uh, half an hour ago. And the second we got there, she was like, bye mom, bye dad. Like we're done. We're out of the picture. She would rather be with my mom than us. And it makes me think like, ah, you know, she's kind of old. Like she's not going to have a ton of time yeah. both ways. Yeah, no, you definitely, that is a, a loss that you can just do with the napkin, right? Is that they, yeah, they're going to be alive for less of the grandkids' life. And, and the same for, for you when you get older, you know, depending on when you're a kid. So that's an that's a issue, uh, you know, if you care about that, um, even if you think that it helps you, even if you think that and them being a little bit older does actually help you in your parenting or whatever. Um, what I would say about the other question is just, is to try to just think sort of generally, right? Obviously, there are going to be, there are a lot of, you know, not all cases are going to be the same. So if you can have the kid right at the point of retirement, well, now they're out of the labor force and they could help you a ton. <laughs> and maybe if you had it five years before, they couldn't help you. But if you're like my dad, who he just retired, he's he's definitely on the physical decline. He could have He could have done a lot more 10 years ago than he can do now just 
he worked night shifts for, you know, 30, 40 years in a warehouse. He's, he's, he's going uh, physically. So it's more of like, in general, I would imagine this thinning out is going to put more burden on the middle than before. But there will be cases where, no, waiting actually makes it easier, either because of finances or because they're not in the labor force anymore or whatever. So, Okay, you, you can talk documentary now. I didn't really watch it. I'm kidding. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay. Of course me, I watched me and it. Mac and Chad. Of course I watched it. Um, now, so I, I guess uh, just the way that I wanted to kind of wade into the documentary stuff is uh, I like at at our at our current ages, the fact that Jake's a little bit older than me and I'm a little bit older than you, Matt. Uh, you know, doesn't really matter or show up. But the the farther back in life you go, um, it 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 seems to matter more. I think I was in eighth grade, mid seventh. Yeah, yeah, because uh, the year 2000 happened in the middle of my seventh grade year, and this was Woodstock 99. So I was in seventh grade. I was keenly focused on the events of the weekend as was unfolding. I remember my family was at a, uh, a Guadalupe River trip, and uh, I was fucking pissed that they wanted to go down to the river because it meant that I couldn't watch MTV on our, uh, our rental cabin. Uh, I'm not even sure that they had cable at the rental cabin. I think I was pretty upset about that because <laughs> I was a real down-to-earth, you know, uh, not spoiled-at-all child. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, just it, it, was, it was the biggest deal in my life, uh, you know, that all the best bands are playing in one place. <laughs> so it's, it's been uh, huge in my mind. The only person I met that, uh, that was there is there was a, a kid at uh, rehab. Of course. That, uh, we were definitely not allowed to talk about that. But he, I, like, I have a very clear memory of like it was, it was nighttime. It was in the lodge. I think they were like lining up to go to bed. And uh, he, we were just talking, and he was like, yeah, you know, uh, small gathering of fellow like-minded people in Rome, New York. And like my eyes got big and he, he gave me like the, like he, he took his hand and moved it down of like, calm down. Someone's (laughs) going to catch on to what we're doing here. If you fucking freak out too much. Uh, and then, uh, then he did passive and overdose during the time I was there. Okay. Always, uh, like, you know, the, 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 the like thing in the uh, this point the documentary is trying to make is that things are like just so spun out of control, right? Like that the the whole event is uh, nothing but like chaos and danger, and so that that it adds to the myth in my mind of like the guy that I knew that you know had too much chaos and danger in his life is the only one that went. But uh, yeah, I just I I was interested in in uh, what what both of your levels of awareness were. Uh, what are your your pre documentary conceptions of uh, of Woodstock '99? I was not uh, I was not aware at the at the time. I didn't know it was happening or whatever. But I, I I over the years have known about you know the riots and the fires and and all that. So I I was acquainted with it you know already looking backwards, um, but not not that well acquainted with it. And I did know the acts. They're all very familiar with me because I was. I would have been 11 and I don't know at that time you are hearing these things and those acts did stick around for years and years after that. So, you know, I, I, I feel like I have some cultural competence in it, but I wasn't like you and knew it was happening and was excited about it or anything. Like I that. knew it was happening and I don't, but I don't remember watching it. I don't remember posting up like I would for, uh, for the spring break special. Yeah, yeah, yeah. MTV <laughs> Spring Break, absolutely. At, uh, you know, some beach in New Jersey or something. So I knew that it happened. 
I was, you know, it was bands I was into at the time. I didn't know that anything untoward or that anything controversial happened until, I don't know if it was that year or the next year, but this is back when I would go to a friend's house and we would all watch the uh, MTV awards, whether it was the movie awards or the music video awards. And I remember, I can't remember which member, it might've been all three of them, but the Beastie Boys got up there and they let loose. Like on, this is bullshit, you know, these, if you, I think they might've even have said, like, if you were there and you were assaulted, you know, here's a number you can call. Like they took everybody to task because this is also, you know, the Beastie Boys are way down their progression of like actually, you know, apologizing for what they were before as teenagers. Yeah, a decade on of having a giant dick on stage. Right, exactly. So that's the first time I had ever heard like, oh, okay, there was actually something bad that happened there because that kind of brought it back up. And I remember seeing it on, you know, probably on MTV News the next day that the Beastie Boys are, you know, they're real fired up about this. And I thought, okay, well, obviously there's more here than I knew about before. Yeah, so... I just, uh, in watching the documentary, like, as far as the documentary went, the stuff that, uh, whenever they're describing, like, the mechanics of it, or stories from there, talking to people who were there, I found all that stuff really fascinating and was uh, happy to watch that. Um, And then, you know, uh, cultural critics 20 years later just imagining how bad it must have been. Uh, (laughs) That that stuff got got pretty... uh, on my nerves where is, is that matching your uh, experience or how, how did you guys fall on that yeah i mean pretty much what, what, what was the new york times guy wesley wesley morris, it wesley yeah. morris? Yeah. yeah yeah him uh <laughs> him uh trying to figure out what must it have been to be at that dmx concert uh and uh him uh, asking the crowd to, uh, you know, say say the N word uh, as part of the lyrics, and just, and then I remember the very end of that where he was like, "But even worse than that, imagine if you were a woman of color." And it was like, "I don't, what are we doing here? Like, and then, do, do people feel that way in '99? I, I wonder how much." What to about think then? About he this? took it to a hypothetical conversation where, after the fact, maybe this is just doing like a post game outside of the Air Force Base. Those white kids who were yelling, it's black friends, are now asking them in this hypothetical world, do you think it's okay to say the N-word? Like this, this <laughs> series of conversations that would never, ever take place. And we've talked about this uh, in the last few weeks. I, I didn't, we didn't pull audio, but he said something to the effect of, uh, how did he put it? Basically, that like there's no circumstance where those kids would have thought outside of that moment that saying that is okay. Like there's, right. that was a hundred percent. The only reason they felt licensed to do so was because they were there. DMX was asking for it as part of a call and response. And I just thought, yeah, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. Like I was in a high school sports football locker room in 1999 with black kids who absolutely had no problem. I know this seems really weird to everyone now and I'm not saying it should have been okay, but I knew a sure. lot of white kids that said the word and they didn't. And if you asked them about it in this hypothetical conversation, is it okay? They would have said, well, yeah, they say it's okay with them. Like, they're it's on my clear. Teammate. Ever, yeah, I'm singing, yeah. singing right. a song. Everett has forgot about this now, but, th- like, 
there was a period where where the n-word was entirely shut down right and then rap i mean like not entirely i'm sure that there were still plenty of racists in the country using it as there no doubt are today um but like in most of american society it was understood to be uh something you don't say then rap brings it back right at least brings it back to the white to white people well just like uh just i would say that it would kind of you know there was a period between whenever rappers were extremely popular and using it frequently and between whenever we did seem to like attach a uh you know stigma against using it and just kind of in the first you know 10 years after like the rappers were using it's like okay so People can use it again, and trying to figure out exactly which people was a much messier process than is now popularly recalled by people like Wesley Morris. Uh, there was plenty of kids who showed up to Excel that we would have to gently explain to them that uh, we don't do that here and it'll be big trouble. <laughs> like, you know, uh, the kinds of kids that get sent to uh, drug rehabs, uh, you know, as like yeah. 14, 15 year olds, um, you know, they had. Uh, Plenty of friends who were, you know, giving them the impression that this was acceptable. And it was wild. I mean, it certainly wasn't everyone. And it was, it was never me. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I don't know. And then just the, the way that they set it up was the, like, the, the, the thing immediately leading up to the DMX thing was Moby basically talking like, like, I, I assume that 9-11 happened at the concert. Like the way that he, the somber <laughs> tone he was using, like the music in the background as Moby was like, I just couldn't believe it. And it's just that DMX sang one of his songs. And then they, they have so much, and it, you know, this is startling, and of course I condemn it. Uh, they have so much documentary evidence of the sexual assault stuff. It's clear that the people putting mm-hmm. together the documentary had a ton of footage and really could give you a pretty good depiction of what it actually was like inside. Uh, and so the fact that the most they could come up with about the, the you know racial mistreatment was Wesley Morris sitting there and going, but could you imagine? Like, I've got a million hours of footage, dude. Don't ask me to imagine. Show me something. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think that was, I don't know, it, his approach to, anal- uh, to analyzing it was, was emblematic of most of the critics where it's so he notices that what's going on is so foreign to what would make sense to him. And instead of in his mind saying, Whoa, wow. So this is a different thing. There's a whole different world going on there. Instead, he's like, no, this world is exactly like mine. And this is just as aberrant as, as, as if it were to be done today. And that that's, that's the common analytical mistake of, of every a person that they interview in the in the documentary which is goofy because it's like i want you to go into this zoo like an anthropologist and tell me about these crazy creatures don't just say oh yeah everything was pretty much exactly like it is now but this was such a weird outlier event it's like that i don't learn anything i'm i'm, I'm trying to learn about this this crazy 90s culture and 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 you're really not you're not helping me. I, I do just in general appreciate any snapshot of that era uh, and I'm, I'm not saying that I'm nostalgic for it in any way, although I did like watch the Limp Bizkit Lollapalooza set in full oh, yeah, <laughs> when it yeah, came yeah. out a, a couple time. weeks ago. But just it's just weird to think about. And I know everybody says this, but it's just weird to think about like that I learned what oral sex was like basically from the president. 
like that it was on the news when I was, you know, like yeah, 14 years old. It's like, weird, I but I knew, didn't but like, like how they applied it the documentary. I don't think that the impeachment of Bill Clinton had anything to do with the events of a fucking festival in New York. I guess it was really more to me just like they're trying to say that this is the beginning of like forefront moral decay. If, yeah, if I, I could make a point at all, like that, that, you know, it's in the, you know, porno's like in the background of the seventies and there's like kind of underground gritty music eighties or it's just cheesy. And then it's, then you get hit with, you know, now there's the, I mean, I, I remember thinking it was a weird time that kids were getting killed at school and the president was talking about sex on TV and I've really never looked back. Those, <laughs> like those kinda, events are odd <laughs> and difficult to digest, but I don't think that they inform the way that I acted at concerts at all. And I just, I, that any of that kind of like cultural analysis that attempts to say, uh, you know, in this country of 300 million people, uh, you know, they're, they're all, I am positive that they're all affected in this way that I'm going to lay out all of them. Uh, it just seems like folly. You, you're, you're not recognizing the limitations of your brain's ability to process information. You're not going to be able to draw conclusions like that. You're lucky if you can say what trends there were in your 10 best friends at the time to like, you know, make it that big. I, I just I don't think anyone can do it. And so I think trying to talk about it's like we could just spend our time better. Yeah. The other part about the sort of uh, the accumulation of headlines is we're talking about a youth event for the most part. And you know, these, the, the headlines that you're lining up just, you know, oh, here's what was happening at the time. Uh, young people, I think generally are much more unplugged from anything going on in the news, right? If you're 18, 19, 20, if you want to understand what's going on, you'd have to go and see like what was big in youth culture at the time. Like what, what kind of things would they have been seeing in, in their heads? They're not reading the New York times, <laughs> you know, they, they get probably through some, osmosis realized that you know bill clinton got a blowjob or whatever but that but that was probably the extent of it most of the other shit they're piling on uh, young people i would assume and especially uh you know corn fans maybe are not really really hip to like that they're not dialed into the inequities of the economy as they tried to make it when that <laughs> and i like a couple of the writers that, that were in there i like their work anyways but i it was it's was it stephen hyden maybe yeah yeah and he's like this is just representative of the top-down culture, the way that it existed in this time, you know, and this is what was bound to happen with that cult. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 felt that, like, that was, was my uh, reach moment, for sure. That was his analysis of Kid Rock coming out in a pimp costume. <laughs> he, was like, he was like, this is a great metaphor for inequality. Is Kid Rock, he's a pimp. And, you know, he, like, that, like that's the, the rich of society. And, and look at all these, uh, you know, the audience is just in this uh, human toilet bowl. And it's like, I don't think Kid Rock was really, I don't I think you're missing the pimp thing entirely here. Yeah, um, the point what, is what not it, that pimps are rich necessarily right like it's not the ultra wealthy of society they just have slightly more money than the other people around like uh, yeah 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 and also how I, I just i just don't want to talk to anyone who has any other reaction to watching that set than damn what a cool set i did forget because i haven't watched the whole thing through in a while that he just yells monica Lewinsky is a hoe and bill clinton is a pimp he does yeah that, yeah that, that, that did give them some fuel for drawing a connection i have to icky, admit but yeah. It's a bit. So probably like the one actual serious takeaway I did have other than laughing at the people that were that were offering the cultural analysis, I found it very funny to see the guys who organized it in 1969 when they were in their, you know, probably mid-20s, 
you know, they're representative of the idyllic Woodstock scene. Obviously, we all know that that's not all true, right? Yeah. I mean, everybody knows about the acid and assaults there. You're saying but, acid is bad? Well, the bad acid. Okay. It was bad acid. Yeah. The brown. I'm still um, looking for that. But so, so you've got these guys in their in their mid twenties and their sixties, and they're full of of positivity. And they're this this event they put on represents that. By 1994, obviously they're 25 years later, but it's the same two guys, and uh, they book a much more Lilith Fairy type uh, type lineup. It's older people, older boomers, younger Gen Xers, and it's it's all still kind of the same vibe. You get to 1999, and these guys are 30 years later, and the uh, the Flower Children clearly just want to book the acts that will draw the most people at the highest dollar. Yeah, like. You, there's absolutely no connection musically between Limp Biscuit and like Mama Cass or something. But so they book these bloated bands that are obviously no, the only reason they're doing it is to make money, and they're standing there yelling at journalists for asking them questions about it. That was awesome to me. I'm like, all right, so you kind of lost the plot of like your mid twenties. I see here, and now you're sa- you're standing here in like a bowling shirt and cargo shorts, screaming at a journalist. I was frustrated because you're selling five hundred dollar tickets to Limp Biscuit. Like the the documentary seemed to really bemoan the fact that there wasn't more connection to the '60s, which again I cannot stress how much as a 14 year old I was never upset that there wasn't more connection to the '60s. But like, uh, what? Like, why would we want a connection to that era? Like, it's a fucking failure. Everything, like all, like it, it could not have been more clear by that time that whatever ideas that they had, that they were terribly implemented and just it, it failed in every aspect to have any kind of impact on creating the sort of society that they said that they wanted to have. Not only like that they didn't change the society around them, like that they themselves had failed at their own objectives by book, like the two individuals specifically by booking all of these fucking shows and trying to make the most amount of money possible. Like, uh, I don't, I don't know, dude. Uh, they, they, obviously, uh, you know, we, we, we all are people here who uh, like the left, but the, the left of the 60s uh, are a great fucking letdown to the cause. Like, you know, they, they had this was like the best chance anyone has had uh, in a lot of ways to do anything about this shit, and they could not have fucking done worse. So I, I don't know if the, the uh, documentary was necessarily making a commentary on that, but like, I just don't feel like that era ought to be celebrated in the way that they were. Uh, upset that it couldn't be celebrated like they shouldn't have venerated the those people and the kinds of things they were trying to do because it had been clear by then that like they were fucking awful at doing them yeah and i mean you know the the whole woodstock approach and maybe this this explains why they're trying to continue forward is and moby has this long drawn out quote where he's like it was the most idyllic place any time half a million people have ever been at the woodstock 69 but it's like the, the failures of this whole group is just that they were doing stupid shit like that. Like, let's set up a utopia in a field and listen to music. And it's like, that's not politics. <laughs> that's 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 just narcissism. And um, also Woodstock 94 and 99 is just the narcissism of that exact same organizer who's obsessed with the one fucking thing he ever did <laughs> in his life. And, you know. And then he has the goal. He was amazing. He was the star of the documentary. So he has the goal. To and I'm not, I'm not here just to simply defend Fred Durst. I have to feel like I, I have am. to say that every day of my life, and I'm, <laughs> I'm going to say it here. 
So you book these bands, you put them in this environment, you know, I'm not sitting here telling you I could uh, do handle the logistics for a music festival. There's obviously a lot of stuff you have to handle. I could do better than those dudes. You probably could. But you book these bands and you do what you do with regard to security, with regard to lodging, with regard to the layout. You book these bands because they're number one on TRL. They're selling ridiculous amounts of records back when you could still do that, which means you can sell the most tickets. And you have the fucking gall to whenever people start breaking stuff, whenever a band's lead single is called Break Stuff, to be like, this is Fred Durst's fault. I mean, <laughs> I, he's like, I've seen another Limp Biscuit show. He's not always riding around on card or uh, on plywood. And it's like, yeah, but pretty close. <laughs> if the <laughs> safety and security of your event rests on Fred Durst being chill, then he's like, you he did not to, intend for he it to be safe to go or that secure. far. Yeah, I'm like what you <laughs> like? How does he not see what a failure he just is by sang him? his song? <laughs> yeah. Like that was it. That's what they got mad at, and it wasn't like he pulled some, uh, you know, uh, unpopular song that you know was super aggro just to like. It's like no, these were the songs. These were the songs he he would sing at every. Ever everything. So what were you? What did you want him to do? Yeah. What songs was he supposed to cover? You know, Hendrix or something like that. In order, I mean, what was? He, <laughs> I just don't know what you wanted him to do. That just that that really fried me. That that guy's like sitting there, sweater vested up. Like I just can't believe Fred Durst would take this this far. And it was also great because somebody put a mic in Durst's face the second he gets off the stage, and he immediately goes. It's not our fault. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, I've been there. Yeah. And then what was the, uh, what was the other big moment for the promoter about like the, what were the women wearing kind of thing? Oh yeah. Because they, they, they did it. Uh, that was yeah. the one thing where I was cheering on the documentary makers is they fucking filleted him with like, they, 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 I can't imagine what their eyes looked like whenever they got that quote from him of, you know, I mean, if all those chicks hadn't been so slutty, who knows? Right. Uh, and then they just had quote after quote following it. <laughs> right. of like, it ruined my life. Uh, I mean, I don't know. It's not funny. But like, uh, you know, it was, uh, they, they really made him look bad in a way that I appreciated. Yeah. Okay. So can I at least say this? Uh, this is uh, Dan rubbing off on me a little bit. Mm -hmm. Is there a way to say that I would... God, this is an old man take. Is there a way to say that, like, I would, I think it would be better if women were not nude in public? No. Mm, <laughs> not in this context. <laughs> is, that, is there any way for me to say that without being, uh, look what she was wearing, or in this case, not wearing, like, blaming women? Yeah, I, I think it's obvious enough. Like, uh, I would never grab a woman like that. But, like, but who did who did more wrong in this situation? It's not you're not trying to so make even a mentioning point on that, that. But if you even mention that, then you're basically opening up the debate that there's shared blame at all. And I'm, blame's not the word I'm looking for, but I don't think people should be naked and public all together hammered. I just I, it's, it's my uh, it's a tender yeah, box. It really is both uh, both when people do that and when you bring it up. So, <laughs> so I won't. You know. Okay, good. I don't want to get. Uh, <laughs> I don't want the same treatment as the promoter. Yeah, no, I just, uh, you know, they were, some part of the documentary was dedicated to the question of why was there so much anger? And uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I really didn't like, like, I just, these the concert goers 
are sort of on the bridge to being responsible to their own actions, but like it sort of depends it's on specific like which side of the bridge they're on, right? Like that's that's where you're starting to be like, okay, I don't care what your parents did. You probably got to, and I don't know. That's not really wherever I am ever. Like I, I think that everyone's parents fucks them up in some way. And like they were all trying to recover from it and we're all doing our best. And, you know, I have no doubt that will be true of my kid as well. Like, you know, I, I just think that that's a good way of like finding empathy for your fellow man. Um, and I just... I did not sense just a whole lot of empathy for your fellow man in the analysis of the documentary. Uh, like, if, if I see all those kids angry, I'm like, you know, my fucking, my heart goes out to them. It sucks. Uh, you know, I, I, you don't end up that angry because of, like, nothing. It probably means that someone was mistreating you. Uh, and I, I thought that Jonathan Davis came out best of any of the speakers in the documentary in my mind because he did seem to, uh, you know, really, like, tap into that. Like, briefly, it's not like he's in the documentary very much, but, like, he, he's the one that kind of was, like, uh, you know, um, rock music is supposed to be something that, like, helps outcasts feel like they're part of a group, and that's what we're trying to do, that, that sort of stuff. And just whenever I'm trying to imagine what, what is generating this anger, um, you know... I think that don't float away. <laughs> yeah, um, Matt's in serious flood conditions. Uh, it it just uh, I think that they're probably by and large in if if they have a job, it's the kind of job where your manager's shitting on you constantly. Like these are probably a bunch of fucking subway sandwich artists, and I I think that that experience I didn't like uh, working at the Black Eyed Pea as a waiter. I left that with plenty of anger at times. And then just, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know, again, uh, with all this stuff, I'm, I'm wading a little bit into the thing that I was criticizing before of trying to make generalizations about groups that are too large to generalize about. Um, but I, I was not especially enthusiastic about the parenting methods that were in place in the 90s. Um, you know, I, I think that it was a lot of scolding kids and not attempting to understand and... Uh, I don't know. I, I, I listened to a lot of corn because I was pretty angry at the time. And, you know, uh, I, 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 it wasn't because, in my view, that I was doing something wrong. I think that the people who were in control of my life, you know, my parents and school administrators, um, just had a lot of uh, tactics that I don't think just had a lot of love or concern behind them. Or at least not in like a genuine way. Like they would all say that, but I, I don't know, whatever. Um, I'm not phrasing this very specifically very well, but, uh, I don't know. I, I just, in that question of like, why, why is the music about such... They didn't really such, ever ask the question. Well, they were they, definitely they, asking the question, why is the music it, but, so angry? Right. But like, it was never answered in a way other than like, no, it's the kids who are wrong. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Like if, if your, if your thesis, which this seemed to be the primary thesis of the, of why the riots and all the violence and stuff occurred is... Uh, these young white men who, like Limp Bizkit and Corn, are super aggro and super upset and pissed all the time, and therefore they did all this stuff. Then the next question is, okay, interesting, so you're going to go figure out why they're pissed, right? No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> uh, the only thing they had was that that one quote from that one, uh, and this was actually, I think, at the time, because uh, it, it looked like they were taking a, a, something from a talk show or whatever, and she was she just said, Something to the to the effect that, you know, these were privileged white men, and then uh, they have ever have had everything given to them, and they're mad. I don't know why, but they are, and, and that's that. Like that was it. That was pretty much as far as they went with it. Um, 
So I don't know if that's your thesis, you should you should investigate that a bit. Yeah, like. yeah. It was it was Cheryl Crow the the the, the characterizes the I don't know why I'm mad, but I'm mad, and like I. That's not, I don't think that's true of anyone. I think that everyone who's ever been mad in the history of man has had a reason for doing so. Like, and uh, your failure to understand, if that reason's not obvious to you, it doesn't mean that it's not there. Like, I understand what she's saying of like the material conditions of these people she assumes are good enough that they ought not to have a right to anger, but I don't think that's how anger works. Like, I think that material conditions certainly help, but uh, it should be obvious to everyone that there's plenty of rich kids out there who are pretty fucking sad and upset and in, in some ways uh at a certain point uh the material conditions are i think are causing that if you're you know son of a billionaire or something well in the, in the on the material conditions front and they did get to this a little bit but it was clearly the the secondary um thesis such as it was the material conditions that clearly contributed to this were one heat so you know the, the temperatures that were so hot that people were dying from just getting too hot piss and 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 shit everywhere no water yeah that was really underrated put that all together because like when i when i when i look at this okay interesting so you're gonna say that the reason there were riots and all this kind of stuff is you had a super aggro bands who have super aggro fan bases so what you're telling me is every time they have a concert there's a riot and everything gets torn down and burned oh no though it only happened here (laughs) it seems like i mean maybe they get a little gragged but nothing like this seems to have happened anywhere else so that suggests there must be at least some other contributing factor that maybe is the bigger one. And then the thing that really teed it off was if you go back to the beginning, they have, you know, those people being like, did you know, actually at Woodstock 69, there were riots and people burned down food stalls and stuff like that. We don't think about it because the documentary that made about it was so beautiful and whatever. But, you know, it was like pretty bad and uh, people died and whatever. I'm like, OK, so let's see. The common thread is literally the exact same organizer fucked up in the exact same way two times and got pretty much very similar results. Um, the bands are different, but that, that is not the I guess we'll never understand why it went things. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> We're yeah. all trying to figure out who did this. Yeah, no, the, the, the constant, like, look how badly this was planned, and then turning around and being like, these terrible kids, though. Uh, it, it was really frustrating. Like, I, I just, I think that, uh, and then at the very end, they throw in, like uh, that there was a successful concert uh, featuring, you know, the same cohort of people uh, a couple months later for the first Coachella. It, like it was planned well and went well. Like sort of seems to me like there's not something weird going on with the kids in the 90s. Kind of seems like maybe just these guys are idiots and that anyone who shows up and like you're, the bit about the uh, security people just showing up, accepting a pass and then taking off their shirt and going to watch the concert like i don't know <laughs> it get, seems like a failure on the part of whoever hired the security maybe yes 100 percent. but can i tell you what i was thinking the second that they mentioned that hmm. i was like i could not have done that fast enough i know it god <laughs> what a great the exact same yeah. shit i would have somehow punched a time <laughs> clock get at least one day of pay and I'm right down in there. I'm not, I mean, I guess probably just start with higher guys in their 40s, right? Abdicated my duty very quickly. Like people who are going to be less excited to see uh, Kid Rock <laughs> right. on stage? Yeah, everyone, 
we everyone we hired for security has a goatee. Yeah, <laughs> like, how do you think this is going to? No, go? and, and that stuff is it's so serious because I, I the thing that I cannot turn away from and would not criticize their analysis of it all is the you know the fucking sexual assault was very bad and appeared to be rampant and that is fucking awful. And so I, I really, you start to think about it and like, I, I wonder if jail time would be appropriate, like for someone who made that many sloppy decisions that led to a situation where it was pretty much just like, you know, fucking uh, Amsterdam for rape. Like it seems really bad. And they, they, I don't know, maybe they pushed back on the guy and they edited that part out because this wasn't necessarily a, this type of documentary where you hear the person asking the questions, you know, in the cuts, but the guy was like, the promoter, it, the way this is being painted out was like there was hundreds of these incidents. He's like, go look at uh, the state of New York's, you know, like yeah. look at the look at the reports that were filed and there's maybe a dozen. And I'm like, my man, there's a dozen in this shot. Yeah. Also, <laughs> like this how shot are you alone dismissing a dozen? A dozen. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't like, help either. That, not a great place to start from, but like clearly that the, and I, if you have any understanding of like any kind of rape statistics, like there's a lot of hesitancy to report it in normal situations. Whenever it's a stranger or a group of strangers who you don't know the name of, don't have any identifying information, and you don't live there, like you're going back to fucking, you know, I don't know, Seattle or wherever you live, uh, it, like... I, it's of course nothing got reported. If the if there were ten, 50, I, I don't know whatever whatever number you want to multiply it by of uh, times the actual number of like reports it would make total sense. All the conditions are there to explain that. Yeah, I don't know if he has another festival planned or what, but like he very easy. I mean, I think they <laughs> shot their shot with the fiftieth that went so. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. but like he very easily could have yeah. said. Looking back, this was a, tre a tremendous failure on my part. I feel bad. Uh, I wish I would have done things differently. Um, you know, just anything. Like, he botched it at every single level. I he seemed ready to make the same mistakes. Yeah. Begging yeah. someone to give him yeah. a chance to make yeah. the same mistakes. No, he, 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 he needs to take a step back and realize he's not good <laughs> at this. Like, I realize, like, it, you know, it became iconic. But what you, what you did to you did not make it iconic the thing you contributed like was always worse than like what it would have been if there had been a competent guy here so i guess maybe you have some intellectual property rights in the name i'm not really sure but like just license that out to whoever organizes the other things and and just get just stay out of it i mean i <laughs> i don't know why he thinks he knows how to do this when he doesn't yeah. So, I, uh, I, I, a tiny quibble at the end, whenever they are putting up the, uh, economic impact numbers for Coachella, I always get frustrated whenever people repeat economic impact numbers. It's a personal favorite of mine. There's a, there's never in the history of the world been an accurate economic impact number. Whenever they're like the surrounding, you know, Indio, California gets a hundred million dollars in tax revenue every weekend, like Everyone should just understand that that number was baked up by the people who worked for the festival that were adding it. Like it, it was like uh, they just added up like the total groceries bought, like period, in the entire weekend. And they were like, "That was all us. I'm just putting that down. I'm gonna put that down." And no Love one's. It. There's no person coming through. Like there's not an accountant sitting there being like, "I don't think that's rigorous." They just they accept the number. Yeah. Every everyone along the chain accepts the number, and then the person making the documentary Google's, you know, how much does uh, the Coachella make? And they're like, "Oh, so it's a hundred million dollars." Yeah, Olympics, Super Bowl, it's great. 
One of my favorites, which is an offshoot of this, is, and I swear to God I've seen this before, is uh, it might even have been when the Super Bowl was in Dallas, is the news reporting on just how much money the horde of prostitutes descending on the area for the Super Bowl will be making this weekend. Like, prostitutes are expected to make upwards of seven and a half million dollars this week alone. Like, how would you ever possibly? (laughs) (laughs) You know, they do a little survey. How much are you planning to spend this week? They look at the report. You know, I mean, they they do got to wait until the IRS data comes out. (laughs) So I guess I never really thought about the fact that the guy holding place kicking's knee is down. (laughs) <laughs> I, love, I love that bit there's a special carve. there's a special carve out for it in the college football rule book but i don't know i don't i try not to mention that and hope no one sure, knows sure. um but, but it, it does raise i would like to see how that carve out is actually written yeah is like there the, a stipulation for how that guy is down or if he just keeps on dragging his knee and right. just walks towards the goal <laughs> like he's a dog <laughs> It, it, it's not clear, and it does come up sometimes because one of the, I don't remember when I first realized this, but I think it was on a fake punt because the guy they kind of ran like an option off the punt, and he pitched it with his knee down, and it just looks so strange. And I'm like, wait a minute, his knee is down. Can he basically like operate as a quarterback here? I, like, it seems like maybe the rule should be. If you're going to put your knee down, you got to actually kick it. If not, then, you know, you got to pop a squat and try to do it that yeah, way. I've, also, I don't know why they don't just make people squat. I feel like these are, these are, they could get some athletes on these <laughs> teams right. who could probably squat and, and hold yeah. the ball. It's a really good question, though, because I have seen the holder do the option before, like catch and pitch to the, like, you know, yeah. add it to the end kicker. And, LSU used to run that a lot. I really want to, like, I want to know. I want to know, like, can he, th- what if he throws? What if he, can he reestablish himself as knee down again and then then kick? Yeah, what if you catch it standing and then go down on a knee to, to get it set up? Surely that happens all the time with bad snaps. Right, if it's high. There's a lot of questions I have here I, that I, I never really that considered about how some unstable area that we this, could exploit. Any, Get a get a you know get one of those college refs on or whatever, and that what they would do if it were like Fox yeah. or something. Give, get get your professional. Those guys opinions. don't know shit. No, <laughs> it became very apparent to me over the years. We had a couple of them on over the time. And one it's of like, the worst you, mistakes they've made is putting people like Mike Pereira on there. It's, it's become extremely important that it or extremely apparent that it's. You know, just kind of working backwards from a conclusion that you hastily drew. The only answer is Donahue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like if the NBA Tim threw it Donahue. to Donnie, <laughs> then yeah. he's like, "This guy, hundred percent point fixing ref." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah the only man you can trust is a dishonest man. <laughs> well, it's that's all I got. He's dishonest. Yeah, no, uh, we appreciate it, Matt. I, I don't know if you have any other. Uh, it did, I know you were bummed that the the Super League didn't come come into play <laughs> for the uh, the soccer. No, it's still coming. Right? Or did yeah, they cancel yeah, it? They, is it, they, they, they folded. That? Oh, I hate I to be even, the one to break man, that news. To as you. much as I was excited about it, you'd think I would have kept up I with that. I think after about um, three days, no, they uh, did the, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm trying to delete it. Yeah, and COVID probably didn't help. <laughs> yeah. And the chip shortage. Yeah. That's just what I've been walking around <laughs> saying. <laughs> <laughs> An idiot everything. 
All right. All right, oh, man. Cool, good man. times. Good seeing you. All right. See you later. That's it for tonight. The high school special is next, so until tomorrow, for everyone who's been a part of this one, I'm TC and Jake. We do thank you for watching. Good night.